All right, your Bibles are open to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Let me go forth what we have already been doing. Uh, if you do not have an outline called God's Ideal Marriage, Spencer has them for you. If you raise your hand, he'll give you an outline that you need to fill out. Anybody need some? We got some over here, some over there. Those of you who raised your hands have agreed to give $5,000 to the building program. And on behalf of the elders, we thank you very much. <clears throat> All right, we've already had a full day. We've got a lot more. After this session, we're going to go to the Family Life Center, and we're going to make a presentation on affair proofing your marriage. I hope you have enough trust and confidence in me. I'm telling you, this is a very important presentation. We did it in Chattanooga, Tennessee one time, and a man sat on about the fourth row, and he cried the whole time. After it's all over, I went to him. I said, sir, can I help you in some way? He said, would to God you'd have been here two years ago. You'd have saved me from making a terrible mistake. We need to hear this information tonight. Because let me tell you something. Satan is alive and well. I am convinced that Satan has targeted the men of our country. And when the men fall, the marriage falls, and the children pay the price. I've seen that too many times. So this presentation, all you have to do is just exit, we'll go right over there, and we'll have that presentation. Tomorrow night, please listen to me, part one, part two. It's the biggest light bulb moment, I think, of the entire conference. You're going to learn some things. It's going to be very, very important. We deal with anger, deal with family of origin, etc. Tuesday night, unrealistic expectations, followed by uh, an hour on addictions in general, pornography specifically. All the young people should be here. This is what they're facing. This is what they're dealing with. Parents, we need to grab the hands of these young people and say, we're going to fight this thing together with you. We're going to work together with you. They are facing problems and temptations you and I never even heard of before. So we need to join with them. I'm a great encourager of young people. Loving your mate through the seasons of life, part one, part two. We'll bring our conference to a close. You have been very gracious to us today. Be honest with you, Lynn, some, Lynn and I come sometimes and we don't know how we're going to be received, but you have been gracious and kind. I heard about a preacher who went to a church one time, he was trying to get a job. So he preached the best sermon he had. Went to the back of the building and a lady went out the door and says, that's the dumbest sermon I've ever heard. She circled back around and says, you know less Bible than we've ever had, anybody ever had. She circled the third time and said, you're the most ignorant preacher we've ever had. Well, he was so upset, he grabbed one of the elders and says, who is that lady? They said, don't pay any attention to her, she's mentally off. She just goes around repeating what she's heard other people say. <laughs> you were kind enough not to do that with me today. We're going to talk about the ideal marriage. Genesis chapter 2 is the beginning of marriage. That's where you find it all started. I'm in the latter part of verse 20 of chapter 2. But for Adam no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he closed up man's ribs, or took one of man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
That is your official beginning of marriage. Somebody has remarked that Adam and Eve were the only couple that had the ideal marriage. Because Adam didn't have to listen to Eve talk about all the other men she could have married. Eve didn't have to listen to Adam talk about how much better his mother's cooking was than hers. So they had the ideal marriage. Tonight we're going to shoot for the ideal marriage. We'll probably never get there. Why? Because we have imperfect people. As long as you have imperfect people, you have imperfect marriages. Does that follow? You understand that? No one's perfect. Preacher was preaching one time. He thought he would be safe to say, why, there's nobody perfect. Why, if you think you're perfect, stand up. Would you believe somebody stood up? He stopped the whole sermon. He said, sir, I said, if you're perfect, stand up. He said, I heard you. He said, you perfect? No. He said, then what are you doing standing up? He said, I thought I'd represent my wife's first husband. Okay. No one perfect. But we're going to seek for what the ideal marriage is. Number one, the ideal marriage is a unified marriage. You say, now wait a minute, Jonesy. The idea that a man and woman are going to be on the same page, let's get real. Okay, I'm going to admit to you that men and women do not see the same thing the same way. I mean, it's just the way they are. Uh, for instance, gentlemen, if your wife decides she needs a new pair of shoes and she wants to go shopping and she asks you to go shopping with her, what you mean by shopping and what she means by shopping might not be one and the same. Okay? You go with her. You go in the first shoe store, first store she goes into, she finds the right color shoes, right pair, right size, right price, perfect pair of shoes, first store you go into. What should you do, gentlemen? Bye. Thank you very much. And when I ask you a question, just go and answer, okay? I give you permission. Buy them. Ladies, no, you don't buy the first pair of shoes you look at. You haven't been shopping. You've got to go with all these other stores. Then probably go back to the original store. Have you ever been someplace uh, after services, man, on Sunday night, maybe Applebee's, Wendy's, or, or Sirloin, or wherever you go? Did you ever sit around and see people eating pie and drinking coffee and having such a big conversation? Did you ever see a woman get up and tell the other women, she said, I think I'm going to the restroom. Any of you ladies want to go? Usually the others say, yes, lady, I'd like to go. And so finally all of them get up and they go together. See, what you don't understand, gentlemen, it's a social event. And they don't want to miss out on it. And I've not been in the ladies' restroom before, but my wife tells me when they get in there, they talk. Well, that's a cute pair of shoes. Where did you get that necklace? I like that dress. I know that's what they're saying when they come out. And ladies, there's not a thing wrong with that. That's fine. But you'll never be at a restaurant some night and see a man get up and say, I'm going to men's room. Any you guys want to go? <laughs> Most men feel they can go without an escort. Gentlemen or ladies, let me tell you something about the men's restroom. When a man gets in there, he doesn't say anything to anybody. He doesn't see another man in there and say, man, dude, you spell good. What you got on there? 
Guys, am I telling it right? Help me out a little bit. Okay, good. Gentlemen, if you're the king of your house, the remote is your scepter. They have made a study of men that when they die, it takes them 24 hours for their thumb to stop moving. <laughs> Ladies, is it not the most frustrating thing you've ever experienced trying to watch TV with him? The more the channels, the bigger the dish. Dude, man, he's, he's flying through. What's going on there? I don't care. We're making good time. That's all he's interested in, ladies. I'm sorry you don't think that way. That's why that last vacation, when you, when you were lost and you made the suggestion, honey, let's stop and ask for directions, he was not going to do it. He doesn't care if he's going the wrong way. He just wants to know, am I making good time in this direction? And ladies, I don't mean to discourage you, but men have been like that for hundreds of years. You remember Moses? That dude wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before he got out. All I'm saying is these differences don't allow them to divide you. All right, unified. Fill in the blanks. Here we go. Did something wrong here. Okay, it's spiritual unity. Notice I didn't say religious unity. There's a difference between spiritual unity and religious unity. And let me tell you the difference. The difference is where Jesus Christ is in this relationship. Is Jesus Christ a center point reference? Young people, don't you dare even think about marrying somebody that Jesus Christ is not the center point reference of that person's life. Why? When you have that center point reference and everybody going toward that center point, what has to happen to the two people? They have to get closer together. Our marriages are hurting today because Jesus Christ is not the center point reference. It's not there. And it needs to be in that place. The difference between spiritual unity and religious, religious unity is the idea is Jesus Christ is foremost. You can be religious without being spiritual. Now let that one sink in. We counsel a couple planning to get married. More times than not, this is my experience, the girl is a Christian, her husband-to-be is not. And I'll ask him, I said, how is God going to work out in this marriage? And she usually say, well, Brother Jones, he's agreed to go to church with me every Sunday. I say, so what? Is that okay? Is that good? Yes. But that doesn't make him spiritual, folks. I can stand in your garage and I don't become a car. One of the saddest situations I know is in a church that I'm very much acquainted with. Young lady, I watched her grow up. She went to Harding University, majored in biology, came back teaching, met a young man. He's a nice person, but he's not a Christian. He did agree to go to church with her. 
he comes to church every Sunday morning, Wednesday night, Bible class, the whole nine yards, and he just sits there. He is a wonderful person. I have talked to him. I think he has made a wonderful husband. But what kind of example is he going to be as his children grow up and make a decision about Jesus? When you decide that you're going to put Jesus Christ first and foremost, it is a definitely an important decision. Let me add to that. Couples need to do things together spiritually. One of the reasons Lynn and I love our work is we're able to work together. And the problem is I see in the church is the wife goes one way, husband goes the other, and you don't work together. Have a Bible study. Take a meal to somebody. Visit the sick. Do something together. It's a tremendous uniting force in a marriage. Secondly, intellectual unity. Does that mean you IQ test your spouse? If they don't measure up to a certain level, you get rid of them? No, that's not what I'm saying. It's going to be very important in the ideal marriage for the couple to be able to talk together, to be able to converse. It's amazing to us that we find our work, there are a lot of couples, married couples, that don't know how to talk with one another. You say, boy, that's us. Wednesday night, we will teach you how to do that. We assume nothing in our conference. That is going to be very, very important. And finally, this important is emotional unity. Now, I've already admitted that men and women do not see the same things together emotionally. I, I, I confess that. All I'm saying is don't let it divide you. Valentine's Day is the best illustration I can give you. Men and women do not see Valentine's Day the same way. You say, how do you know? I watch them. Next month, near Valentine's Day, about three days before, I usually park myself at Walmart and I watch people pick out a Valentine's card. Men and women do not do it the same way. A man picking out a Valentine's card at Walmart. Wife. He does not have a clue, ladies, of what it said. He knows it says wife on the outside. That's all he's interested in. Now, he can sign his name. He can give it to you and cry if you want to. But he doesn't know what it said. Okay? A woman picking out a Valentine's card at Walmart. The average woman will take down four to five cards and look at them, put them back up, put them back up, and finally find the one that she thinks matches her husband. She will then take it, write a nice note at the bottom of it, and hand it to him. Now, ladies, watch it next month when you hand it to him. Valentine's Day is next month, guys, in case you don't know. Ladies, watch it when you hand it to him. He'll open it up and he'll say, that's nice. He hasn't read it yet. He can't read that fast. But he knows he better say something positive else he is in big time trouble. A lady in Birmingham, Alabama, years ago told me 
she said, this is the truth. My mother has given my dad the same anniversary card for the last 10 years and he hasn't caught on yet. Next, God-centered marriage. The Bible says we're to become imitators of God, mimickers of God, Ephesians 5 and verse 1. Now, what does that mean in a marriage? Number one, it's a marriage characterized by commitment. Folks, God is a committed God. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He puts the rainbow in the sky to show I'll never destroy the earth by flood ever again. The commitment that we have in marriage is not only commitment to the marriage, but it's a commitment to the person. Men make this mistake all the time. Well, I'll supply what's needed in this marriage. That's good, gentlemen. That's fine. But that's not enough. It's a commitment then to a person. To your wife. Ladies, it's a commitment you have to your husband. So... The ideal marriage, then, is characterized simply by commitment. Secondly, it's characterized by unconditional love. The Bible says that God commends his love toward us. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have to understand, and again I come back to what I said this morning, until we understand the unconditional love of God this way, we do not understand how it works this way. That's a whole other whole lesson within itself. Now, Unconditional love is a decision to bless your life. I want what's best for you. That's basically what it's saying. Now, it does not mean, as we see here, the unconditional acceptance of ungodly behavior. We will deal with this several times in our conference. What happens is people put up with ungodly behavior under the guise of love. Agape love, the kind of love that God has for us, stands against any behavior that's sexually immoral, illegal, unethical, or hurtful. When you put up with that kind of conduct, that's called codependent. You are in a codependent situation. Codependency is not the same thing as agape love. Unfortunately, what we find are couples in between in what we call reciprocity. I will do this, but I expect you to do that. I'm going to do the dishes tonight, you sweep the floor. I'll take care of the child tonight, you take care of him tomorrow night. And according to my calculations, I'm ahead six to two, and I'm not going to do another thing till you catch up. You see how warped that is? That is simply not what we call agape love. Next, in having a God-centered marriage is characterized by forgiveness. If you were with us in our conference this afternoon, we talked about forgiveness. The releasing of my right to be heard. Be hurt. In other words, I'm not going to allow retaliation revenge to be the agenda of my life. We talked about that in the conference this afternoon, so we'll not go over that material. Any relationship, not just marriage, any relationship cannot last long term without forgiveness. The nine words that you have to learn in order for a relationship to work, whether it's friends or whether it's a marriage or whatever it is, the nine words are, I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. All right, let's all practice that. You ready? Outline. Here we go. I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. <laughs> I still get tickled. There's usually a few men out there 
I'm not going to say that. But you see, saying I'm sorry is not good enough. You have to deal with the attitudes and actions. My marriage to Lynn, I knew would not work long term without forgiveness. I learned that before we ever said I do. Now let me understand, explain to you how that worked. Lynn and I met the uh, last week of January 1995 at the Oklahoma Christian University Lectureship Program where I was speaking. Our first date was the first week of February 1995 and we married on May 26, 1995. Now, if you're paying attention to the calendar, you know we dated most of February, March, April, and not all of May. Some of you are thinking, well, you didn't date very long, did you? Well, to be quite honest with you, we didn't. At age 56, I didn't think it was wise to date long term. Now that I'm 79, when I go to the store, I don't even buy green bananas anymore. <laughs> if they're not ripe, I'm not buying them. You know, age has slowed me down just a little bit, I have to admit that. Had to quit playing basketball, love the sport, reason why I quit is last time I was playing, I was racing across the key and the referee called three seconds on me. You know? <laughs> I was doing the best I could. <laughs> Takes me two hours to watch 60 minutes now. <laughs> What's your problem? We started dating. Some people want to know about it. I'll tell you a little bit about it. I think it's interesting. She uh, looked at me one time and she said, uh, these are her words. This is a quote. <laughs> she said, I don't care if you are Jerry Jones. I'm going to check you out. I said, fine. What do you plan to do? She said, I'm going to check your people trail. I said, my what? My people trail. I said, what's a people trail? It's people have known you. I want to know, are you who you claim to be? Let me tell you something, everybody's got a people trail. I said, fine, how far back you want to go? She said, high school. I said, that's pretty far back. Can you produce somebody that knew you in high school? I said, I believe I can. I called my friend Dick Metz. He was the center on the basketball team where I played guard. And I said, Dick, I guess you heard Claudette died. He said, yeah, I heard that. He said, I'm dating a lady in Oklahoma and she wants to check my people trail. He said, you're what? I said, people trail. He said, what's a people trail? I said, you. She wants to talk to you about what I was like in high school. He said, bring her on. Now this, Dick Metz is now gonna become my credit reference. I need to tell you something about Dick. He's been married and divorced five times and he's a recovering alcoholic. And he's gonna be my credit reference. 
Hope you got that one okay. Sure enough, he vouched for her what I was. And so then, fair about, fair play, I'm going to check your people trail. She said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to talk to the, to the counselor, the psychiatrist that worked you through your divorce. She said, fair enough. She called the man, told him to forget about confidentiality, tell him anything he wants to know. I went into this man, sat down, introduced myself. He said, Mr. Jones, what can I help you with? I said, one question. Is this woman sick or not? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't beat around the bush very often, you know. I mean, if she's some kind of sick, bent out of shape female, all honesty, folks, I didn't want to, I didn't have time to fool with that. He said, no, she's very healthy. I said, good. Then we decided to talk to five other couples that were in second marriages for whatever reason. Let me tell you something. If you're single and you decide to marry, you get some input. You talk to other people. Because you see, you can be so enamored that you fail to see the signs that you need to see. And that's what we were. We were scared. This looked too simple. Some of you are related to Harding University. Dr. Billy Ray Cox was the vice president of Harding University for a number of years. Officiated at my first wife's funeral. We called him and I said, uh, or he called me and said, I understand you're dating seriously. I said, yes. He said, Pat and I would like to talk to you. I said, fine. We went down to Rowlett, Texas, spent a couple of days down there. And finally, Pat looked at me and said, Ananias told Saul of Tarsus, why do you tarry? I looked at Lynn and she looked at me. I'm in love with her. She's in love with me. And I said, are you ready? She said, yes. I said, I'm ready too. You're in Dallas, Texas, and you want to get married as fast as you possibly could. On a Thursday afternoon, what would you do? We called Arkansas. Bentonville, Arkansas. I said, what's it take to get married in Bentonville, Arkansas? They said, driver's license. I said, we're headed your way. We piled in that van, started north, and went through a Toka, Oklahoma. On the left-hand side of Toka, Oklahoma is Love's truck stop. That's where we stopped. That's where people to love stop. <laughs> I'm putting gas in the van. She's frantically going through her purse and announces me. I believe I left my wallet back in Dallas. I don't get it. I tell her, don't worry, I have plenty of money. Money's not the issue, ladies. What do you keep in your wallet besides money? Driver's license, thank you very much. When I realized that, First of all, I had to find out where the wallet was. So I called Billy Ray. I said, Billy Ray, check the room where she was staying. See if her wallet's there. He called back and said, yes, it is. Okay. I had already made arrangements to get married in Garfield, Arkansas, by an elderly preacher named F.I. Stanley at 7 o'clock at Ron Conley's home. We don't have time to go back to Rowlett. So I called Bentonville. I said, what does it take to get married in Bentonville? Well, they said driver's license. I said, yes, I know that, but... What happens if my wife-to-be doesn't have her driver's license? Will you accept the facts of a driver's license? And they said, sure. <laughs> Apparently up there, they just accept anything. So. <laughs> now, this forgiveness, I told you all that forgiveness now is interest. I cannot imagine how a woman, as intelligent as she is, wanting to marry me, would leave the very thing back in Texas that we needed. I thought it was ridiculous. I thought it was unforgivable, but I thought it was not wise to tell her what I was thinking on the eve of my honeymoon. <laughs> Y'all follow me okay? 
courthouse, Bentonville, Arkansas. Go up there, where you get marriage license? Here's my driver's license. Did you get a fax today? The lady said, yes. I said, it's a fax of this lady's driver's license. We want a marriage license. She said, you can't get one. That's how come. I told, I, somebody said I could. Sir, she said, I told you, but I didn't realize when you faxed the driver's license, the information comes through, but the picture's totally black. In other words, you cannot identify this woman with this fax. I said, are you telling me I can't get a marriage license? She said, you can't get one to this woman. <laughs> Do you understand how forgiveness now is becoming tough? If we don't get that marriage license right then and there, we can't get married Friday night. Saturday, the courthouse is closed. It's closed on Sunday. Monday's Memorial Day. I'm going to have to wait to Tuesday, and I'm focused. I look at Lynn. She grins. I don't see anything funny. Through the grin, she says, I've got an idea. I look at her and I say, good, what is it? In my mind, I'm saying, woman, this is strike three. <laughs> In her purse, ladies, she pulls out her Sam's club card. Your picture is on the Sam's club card, right? She said, maybe this will work instead of a driver's license. I said, what have we got to lose? I took the Sam's club card. I told the lady she doesn't have her driver's license, but there's her Sam's club card. She looked and grinned at me. She said, in this town, that is better than your driver's license. <laughs> Woo! Now, she's had to forgive more after the wedding than before, than, than I've had to. I mean, you can't remember some of the dumb stunts I've done in this marriage. I'll tell you a couple good ones here. Christmas with her parents. Her dad's president of Oklahoma Christian University, or has been. Brother has a doctor's degree from Oxford, teaches in the Bible department, good people. And I'm the new kid on the block. They get together on Christmas Eve in this big room, and you get all the presents with your name on it. And then somebody is selected to open a present while everybody else watches, where they can ooh and ah. It's the dumbest way I've ever seen to do it. But that's what they do. So, they asked Lynn, do you have a present from Jerry? I had given her two, our first Christmas together in 1995. She will verify this. The first gift she opened for me, from me, on Christmas 1995, was her own personalized hunting knife with her name engraved on it. I know some of you ladies are jealous, but you just have to get over it. I knew I'd made a hit with the whole family because nobody said anything. Finally, somebody said, that's nice. She still has that knife. A couple years ago, I was up there in the master bathroom and she was reputting around the, uh, the shower. Guess what she was using for a putty knife, guys? That $50 buck knife with her name engraved on it. 
I tried to gently tell her, I said, look, that is not a good thing to putty with because it's got a point on it. She said, yes, I know that. That's why I broke the point off. <laughs> God, doesn't that just get you tough? It's my knife, I'll do what I want to. I said, yeah, you have it. She keeps that knife, loves that knife, keeps it in the drawer next to the bed for some reason. They were so impressed with the first gift that they said, do you have another gift? Unprecedented, she gets to open two. She opens the second gift, and I'm sitting there thinking, oh boy, they're gonna love this one. Second gift, she'll verify it, was her own personalized camouflage kimono. Gentlemen, if you don't know, that's a bathrobe. She put that thing on in the bedroom, looked like a tree on the move right now. Forgiveness. Why is it hard to forgive? You ever thought about why it is? Number one is fear. If I forgive, they're just going to do it again, so why should I forgive it the first time? Secondly, if I forgive, I can never use it against them. I can't get moment and argument. You remember when you did so-and-so, if I forgave it, I can't do that. And then I can no longer live the victim. What we call victim mentality. So fear is one of the reasons. But there's another big reason. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul talks about some things we need to put off and then some things we need to put on, but most importantly, he tells us why. Look at verse 31, chapter 4. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Paul, what should I put in this place? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. But why? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. You forgive because you've been forgiven. The second reason why forgiveness is so difficult sometimes is our own feeling of righteousness. I am glad that you do not know everything that I've done that is sin in my life. If you did, I would be embarrassed. I have done some definitely wrong things. I'm probably sure everybody in this room could say the same thing, right? But by God's grace, we've been forgiven, saved, and sanctified. Talked to a couple today, want to place membership at this church. You say, boy, that'd be great. Who are they? Really, you already know them. Their names are David and Bathsheba. In case you don't know, he had sex with this woman and then had her husband killed. He'd give 10,000 times if he had done it, read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. He becomes an illustration of justification by faith in Romans chapter 4. If you have problems with them being members of this church, you better take it up with God. You see, God has not paroled us from our sins. He has freed us from our sins. And we've got to understand that. Because see, once you understand that, the gospel basically is too good to be true.
Emotional intimacy. Let me define it for you. Oops, it went out. Help me back there. It's freedom from anxiety in the presence of vulnerability. I am not over-anxious that Lynn knows my shortcomings, my imperfections, and my struggles was a guarantee as she does, as I know hers. Unless a couple has emotional intimacy, we're not talking about physical intimacy, we're talking about emotional intimacy. Unless you have freedom from anxiety in the presence of vulnerability, here's the problem. The problem is your marriage has deteriorated. You're going to have to help me with the next slide or do something. There we go. The reason why you have to have emotional intimacy is because if you don't have that, your marriage has deteriorated into emotional divorce and it's become an arrangement rather than a relationship. I'll tell you up front, church. If you're not willing to be honest and transparent, this week is a waste of your time. If you want to wear the mask and play the games and do the facade stuff, you go ahead and do it. We can't help you. If your spouse knew how you feel about them in the, in the marriage, some of it would be great because we have some great marriages in this church. Thank you very much. But as I told the men today, that's not true of every marriage. Oh, you do a great pretend job around here and laugh and talk and everything else. And you get in the car and you close that front door and you know there's something wrong in this house. You still sleep in the same bed, you're riding the same car, sit at the same table, but you're not on the same page. Lynn is the professional counselor of our ministry. I rely on her nearly totally. I asked her one day, how does a marriage that starts out so excited and everybody's so glad and doing all these nice things, how does it deteriorate into an arrangement rather than a relationship? How does that happen? Listen carefully. She said the best explanation I give is as follows. She said, the problem is, here's a person that comes into a relationship as an adult with the cup half filled. In other words, they weren't esteemed, they weren't nurtured, they were not encouraged, maybe they were abused, maybe they were hurt in some way. And they think as they come into adulthood, if I can find my better half, if I can find that other person who will fill me up, who will meet the needs that I never had in childhood, and if they don't, I can tell them what they are and they'll meet them and I'll be, praise God, a whole person. This other individual comes into adulthood in a very similar way. Maybe they were not loved. Maybe they were not encouraged. Maybe they were not nurtured. And they're thinking the same thing. If I can find another person that will love me like I've never been loved before, care for me like I've never been cared before, then hallelujah, I'm going to be a whole healthy person. So these two half people get married thinking they're going to be a whole person. And it's not long into that marriage that this one is not meeting the needs of that one. Or maybe they can't or vice versa. And they finally say, 
what, what you're not, you're, you're deliberately hurting me. You're deliberately abusing me. You're deliberately withholding from me what I need. And therefore, the whole thing separates. Because they see, they started out with the wrong foundation. You see, the basic needs that all of us have of love, nurture, unconditional, no abandonment are not found in another person, folks. They're found in a relationship with God Almighty. You're looking the wrong place. And we find marriages splitting apart all over the country because they think that someone else can fill a void that it can only be filled with God himself. And see, that's why what we're doing this week is so monumental important. We're not just trying to tweak you just a little bit. We're trying to get you to see where God should be in your life, whether you're single, married, divorced, widowed, wherever you are. It's so important. You say, Jerry, can, can I start investing in my life or my marriage tonight? Absolutely. Here are just some suggestions, acceptance, affection, appreciation, approval. You see, you make deposits into your marriage because you're going to make withdrawals. We are human, folks. And if you withdraw more than you put in, you know what happens. You're bankrupt. And the problem is people wait till they're bankrupt. When they're finally bankrupt and nothing left, that's when they call the elders, they call the preacher. Folks, they're not miracle workers. What we're about this week is maintenance. Giving you a quality of life that you cannot have any other way. That's why the session tonight is so important. That's why the sessions this week is so important. In all likelihood, folks, we'll never be back here again. This is your best shot at what we can give. And you see, our emphasis is not so much what we're doing, is we're trying to connect you with God who can take care of those needs. Great scripture goes on your refrigerator tomorrow. However, each one of us love his wife as he loves himself. The wife must respect the husband. How different would your life be if that's what you followed alone? You're here. You need some help. As I said this morning, I love this church because it's a church that's people-centered. That's why we're here but we don't know who you are. You can come tonight, or you can write us, or contact us, or pull somebody off to the side and say, I need some help. Because you see, that's what family is about. That's what it's about. If we can help you in anything, we're gonna sing a song as we stand.